Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The war in Syria is in its sixth year. Since it began, 6.5 million people have been displaced. That's one in three Syrians. Another 470,000 are dead. Northwestern University professor of politics and author Wendy Perlman spoke with many refugees for her new book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. Wendy Perlman joins us on the phone now. Wendy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And I should mention that uh, Wendy Perlman will be uh, at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg tonight, speaking about her book, signing copies, and uh, talking about uh, her experiences with uh, Syrian refugees. That's tonight at 7 at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg. All right, so let's talk about the genesis of this book. How did it come about? Well, I've been studying the Middle East since the mid-1990s. I did a college semester abroad in North Africa and continued with it ever after. I wrote two books on the Palestinian national movement. So when the Arab uprisings began in 2011, which many of us now know as the Arab Spring, I really became captivated by these shows of people's power, people who maybe had never imagined uh, protesting, going out, sometimes risking their lives to call for change. And there was nowhere where this was more dramatic and really more urgent than in Syria. At the time, many outside observers and even Syrians themselves said, you know, Syria is a kingdom of of silence was the term used. Syrians, people said, were just too afraid and weren't going to go out and protest. So the Syrians did. I really wanted to know what it was like and what it felt like and what was motivating them, again, to often risk their lives to call for change, to call for freedom, to call for dignity, to say that after 40 years of authoritarian regime, uh, we want to uh, choose our own leaders and we want to live as, as free people. Um, and I sort of followed the Syrian uprising from afar during the year 2011, and in 2012 got my first chance to begin interviewing Syrian refugees. I went to Jordan for the summer, basically interviewed any displaced Syrian I could. Uh, at that point, it was already too dangerous, I felt, to go inside Syria to be interviewing Syrians, at least to have be with people and talk frankly about politics, about protests, um, about their points of view. So I began to interview displaced Syrians. So after a summer of basically interviewing any any Syrian I, I could, I, I continued with it. And I returned to Jordan. I moved on to Turkey, to Lebanon, uh, eventually moved to Europe, to Sweden, Denmark, and Germany. Also did some interviews with Syrians in the United States. So all in all, it was uh, four-plus uh, years of interviewing um, more than 300 Syrians of different walks of life, um, with one caveat there. The, the huge, overwhelming majority of people with whom I spoke identified as being opposed to the regime of Bashar al-Assad. So uh, this doesn't represent the full Syrian population. It in particular, doesn't rep- really represent the views of Syrian regime supporters. Uh, but this is a revolutionary narrative. It, it gets you into the perspective, um, including the debates, and as well the overlaps of those millions of Syrians who rose up to say that they wanted a, a different type of government. So I collected many, many, many of these individual stories and then slowly wove them together in a book that's an oral history. And the book consists almost exclusively of Syrians' own words. It's sort of a curation of testimonials providing this point of view and a, a window into the human experience of what it's been like to live the Syrian uprising and Syrian war and then Syrian refugee outflow. You know, 
know, one of the unique aspects of your book, and I think you touched on this a little bit, is that it is directly from the Syrian people. Over the last six years, we've seen many television reports, newspaper, uh, Syrians being quoted, uh, you know, in, in, in the media. But yours is the most extensive where it talks about those experiences. But I want to move back a little bit because, as you said, the book is an oral history. It's divided into several parts, starting with even, you know, before the Civil War started, leading up to the Arab Spring, then what happened after that and the response from the Assad regime. Uh, But I want to ask something that uh, you you kind of, you were talking about the Arab Spring, you were talking about all the places that you've traveled to in the Middle East now for this yeah. book, but uh, you've done that before. How is Syria different? I mean, there were some countries in the Middle East that uh, benefited from the Arab Spring, but Syria wasn't one of those. In fact, Syria probably is the poster child for what went wrong. How is Syria different than those other nations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And in many ways, um, Syria has become the poster child of what went wrong for Arab authoritarian leaders themselves. So for countries that haven't had protests and leaders are holding on and want to scare their populations and say, don't even think of going out and protest. You should be lucky that you have this dictatorship. They all point to Syria and say, should you want to protest? This is what will happen to you and to your country. So it's, um, it has become a symbol in that way to, in many ways, uh, intimidate and silence Arabs throughout the region and, and perhaps beyond the region. So, you know, every, um, every Arab authoritarian regime has its own history. I mean, many are, are products of, of events earlier in, in the century. So in, in, in the Syrian case, um, there was a kind of a weak parliamentary regime when Syria was a French mandate, was under French control as a colony after independence, remained, had a kind of a weak system where there were uh, sort of landed aristocratic elites of a, of a, of a top notch of the lead of society were, were politicians. People were frustrated with that system. A military uh, general overthrew the system in the, fir- in the region's first coup d'etat in 1949, also on the backdrop of frustration with the 1948 war between Israel and, and, and the Arab state. And then from 1949 to 1963, there were a series of coups and instability. There'd be a military leader returned to, to democratic rule, another military leader, just always coups and coups and coups, tremendous instability of a, of a newly independent state. The Ba'ath Party took power in 1963. The Ba'ath Party um, had an ideology saying championing secularism, nationalism, socialism. They took power in 1963. There were a series of internal uh, infighting within the the Ba'ath Party, and within that one military general from the Ba'ath Party, Hafez al-Assad, seized power in 1970. And then he created... extremely strong, effective authoritarian regime that did away with those decades of coups and instability. He was able to successfully manipulate institutions, coalition building, political strategies, redistribution of the economy to give many new services and subsidies to the poor, but also sort of bring in business elites and and have them benefit from the system, and created ultimately security rules so that there was some use of economic policies to win support or um, other distribution of benefits and so forth. But ultimately, the military and an array of dozens of security forces stood behind the regime such that should anybody want to challenge power, violence was used against them. And that really came to the fore in 1982. The Muslim Brotherhood, which remained the most powerful organized opposition movement at the time, started carrying out various violent attacks, launched something of an armed insurrection in the town of Hama in 1982. And the regime sent in tanks and troops they killed up to tens of thousands of people, many of them civilians who had nothing to do with the Muslim Brotherhood, flattened entire neighborhoods of the city. And that sent a message almost to an entire generation, this is what this regime will do should you dare to challenge power. And that event um, became such a powerful part of the collective memory that many just, you know, became silenced, in addition to corruption that co-opted people and so forth. So after those sorts of the decades of instability, Assad created a system that was powerful and which power was concentrated personally in him. An entire system used various strategies from co-optation to violence to keep people quiet and in line. And that survived for decades. 
Hafez al-Assad died in 2000, his son took over, such that when the Arab Spring began in 2011, many thought, that regime is so strong. Can, we, can, we, can I interrupt you for a second yes. before we g- get on to the sun? Because I have yes. a couple yes. quotes from that era of Hafez al-Assad. Um, yes. This one is from Fadi, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, a theater mm-hmm. specialist. He says, a yes. Syrian citizen is a number, dreaming is not allowed. And then there was Abdul Rahman, an engineer who says mm-hmm. they, Hafez Assad military, started with shelling and then chose neighborhoods in which to start killing people. In one neighborhood, they gathered males over 13 years old and executed them. They left the corpses so people could see them. I mean, those yeah. are two pretty powerful quotes right there. Yes, yeah, exactly. And that, thank you for, for bringing those in, because as, as you say, the, the power of the book lies in not me narrating the story or the historian, because there are already other books in which outside scholars or analysts narrate this history. But the book shows how Syrians themselves are narrating this history through their memories, through what they lived, through what they heard from their, their, their parents and so forth. So Abdurrahman in that case is from the city of Hama, and he is saying his parents lived through that event, his grandparents lived through that event, and he's telling about the stories that have passed down to him and to all people with this sense of this is what will happen if you, if you rise up. It's better simply, as Fadi says, to not dream not dream of a better system, not dream of a better life, go along with authoritarianism, because otherwise the risks are simply too high. So that is the backdrop of, of fear, of silence, of almost uh, a sense of dis- a disposition that it's just better to have a kind of dark, unfree, dreamless life than um, than then open the box to see what will happen. So that's why, exactly why in 2011 many thought, oh, Syrians won't rise up. So when they did, it was really miraculous. It was heroic. People mustered the courage to say, I'm going to go out at, at huge risk because I want something better. I want to, I want to be free. Um, and then the book has many, many rich uh, passages in which people talk about the protest meant to them on a personal level, how meaningful it was, how euphoric it was, how it was, some people say, the best moment of their lives um, when, they, when they broke through and said, I'm a free being, I'm not going to live a life of intimidation. I want to talk a little bit, moving moving on to um, the the son and current leader yes. of uh, Syria, Bashar al-Assad. Yes. Um, yeah. First of all, a little bit of background here. He was Western educated, uh, mm-hmm. rose in succession when his older brother died in a car accident in 1994. Uh, yes. He actually gave hope to, to the Syrian people looking for reform. Uh, there was less pressure on activists, journalists, progressivists. Uh, middle class developed. Uh, But then, as you mentioned, let's go up to 2011, the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. It was a bit of a surprise for many people. First of all, you can talk about how Assad reacted to the protest and how that did surprise some people. Yeah, absolutely. I think you you really capture well that when Bashar first came to power in 2000, there was a lot of hope and a lot of optimism. And people thought, this is a young guy. He's a doctor. He's educated. He's going to make reform. He's going to bring change. And he presented himself as a modernizer and a reformer and became quite personally popular. And early on, by uh, 2001, 2002, there were events that became known as the Damascus Spring, in which many um, uh, intellectuals and activists started to make petitions calling for reform and had salons in their home where they had debate and discussion. And the regime totally slapped those down. So even within the first year of Bashar's reign, there was indication that this image of being a reformer was only an image, and he wasn't actually willing to make real change. But still, 2011 was different. On the backdrop of mass uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt and elsewhere, many thought maybe this is a moment. So Protests began in Syria, and the book describes how they began as these tentative, quiet, initial steps, and then began mass street protests. And they spread and uh, over space and spread over time. And uh, something like two, a few weeks into the uprising, 60 people had been killed by, by security forces, opening fire, beating um, uh, unarmed, peaceful protesters. And there has, was not any word from the president. And the Syrians I talked to described, waiting, waiting, when is Bashar going to speak? What is he going to say? Can he 
you know, take us back from the brink of of a, of a huge conflict where uh, people are, are mourning their dead, people are wanting change, millions are out on the streets. We want our president to 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 tell us what he plans to do. So he had his first televised address um, late March 2011, spoke before the parliament. It was on television for the entire country to see. And people describe in the book the anticipation waiting for him. And he got on television and basically said, you know, if you want war, we will give you war. You want war being these unarmed kids on the street. He said they're terrorists, they're they're gangs, um, and there will be no compromising with them. And that was a moment which indicated for many people that there was no compromising with this regime. It wasn't a regime that would make reform, that would make change, that would make concessions, that would say there's some legitimacy for people on the street saying we want an end to corruption, we want some accountability, we want to be able to form a non-regime controlled newspaper, we maybe want to control a different, you know, have a different political party. He basically said there is no space for concessions. We will fight unarmed peaceful protesters as if it's terrorism. For many people, that was a turning point in which they said, they, in the beginning, the calls were absolutely for reform. They weren't for regime change. People were calling for some changes that were totally within the consistency of the existing political system. You're just calling for new policies. But from that moment, many began instead to call for the collapse of the regime, a mm. change of the regime. Um, and since then, it's been this, this fight to the finish. I mean, there are many, many other developments and turning points along the way. But, and we'll, um, we'll we talk about those. That, we'll yeah. talk about those in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome back to Smart Talk. During this portion of the program, we're speaking with Wendy Perlman. She's the author of We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria, a unique tome that uh, just, and actually the story is told by those voices from, from Syria, as we describe. If you have a question or a comment, we have a few more minutes with Wendy uh, Perlman. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalk, w at uh, WITF. That's 1-800-729-7532. Uh, Winnie, you talked about uh, the, the, the crackdown, 12 days, 61 deaths after the protest began in Syria, and you mentioned Assad dressing the nation via TV. But then the chapter in your book turns to militarization. Uh, yeah. The protests turned violent in March. Uh, Ex-military militias form against Assad. Rebels engage military full-on. Al-Qaeda and ISIS develop a presence pushed by the regime to infiltrate anti-Assad rebels. Uh, foreign intervention. Regime solidifies support from Iran, Iraq, Russia, Hezbollah. And here's a quote from Ashraf, an artist, who says, If international powers had intervened at the beginning, it wouldn't have reached this point. The problem is not that the world did nothing. It's that they told us, rise up, we are with you, revolt. The U.S. and Turkey drew lines, and when the regime crossed those lines and there was no implementation of the threats, the population was left in a state of desperation. It understood that it could count only on itself. That's sad. Yeah, and that it's it's both sad and extremely representative. What came through it, the interviews that are in the book and then the dozens and dozens of conversations I had that didn't make it into the book, again and again, this sense of total abandonment and disappointment with the international community. Syrians would say again and again, you know, we went out calling for freedom, uh, calling for, for change. We thought that the, the West stood for democracy and human rights. We went out being killed for those ideals and nobody did anything. Um, nobody came to support us. Nobody offered us civilian protection of a no-fly zone or other ways that would simply protect civilians from being slaughtered, especially from aerial bombardment. When you're being bombarded by the regime and its allies uh, with bombs from above, there's nowhere to hide and nowhere to protect yourself. So people felt extreme extreme despair, as, as Ashraf said, 
cause or or disappointment with the international community's failure to stand by its its ideals and the most basic principle of never again you know after world war ii there's a principle of responsibility to protect um whether we help people or stand by in solidarity with with their political struggles at least we shouldn't allow innocent civilians to be killed by their governments um and that that hasn't uh, that hasn't happened. We've watched hundreds of thousands of Syrians killed, tortured, imprisoned, forcibly displaced from their homes. People are being starved at the at as we speak, as as their communities are surrounded by regime forces that do not allow uh, food and medicine to come in. There was a large Amnesty International report um, just this week released about. Uh, accusing the regime of, of atrocities, as well as rebel movements also of committing uh, war crimes. So the, the lists of, of, of crimes being committed as we speak in Syria are just, are just horrific. And part of the, the motivation of the book was to try to encourage a, a Western or English-speaking reader to read the book and say, you know, what would I do if I were in the shoes of these, of these you know, brave and suffering individuals in Syria, and what is my obligation or our obligation as human beings uh, before this human tragedy? That line that uh, was referred to famously here in the United States, and we heard about it a lot during the 2016 election campaign, uh, the Obama administration, President Obama, said that there would be a red line that uh, if Syria used chemical weapons, that the United States would act. And President Obama has been criticized maybe more than anything else by even uh, his supporters for not following up once Assad did use chemical weapons. Yes, yes. And and I, you know, I consider myself one of those people who's a great admirer of President Obama on so many levels, but I'm quite disappointed with with that, and the sense of disappointment comes through in in the book too. There are individuals who are you know, proud Syrian nationalists who are extremely patriotic, love their country, would never dream of wanting to encourage a foreign country to come bomb them. But at that point in the conflict, were felt such despair, did not see another way out, wanted this war to end wanted there to be consequences for a regime that used these kind of weapons against its people, um, wanted some change in, in the status quo, that they were also begging almost, calling for, for some sort of greater U.S. intervention, including military intervention, um, to say enough is enough. And when that red line didn't happen, Syrians again and again would say to me, oh, when the red line was crossed, it became a green light, a signal to the regime, to its allies, Iran and Russia, and to other actors on the ground, you can do whatever. You can kill civilians. You can commit any crimes with impunity. There will be no consequences for killing civilians. And what we've seen are the results of that, the use of chemical weapons, the use of barrel bombs, starve and, and uh, surround strategies, rampant torture in prisons. There have since been a, emerged tens of thousands of images of um, documenting systematic torture in regime prisons. People who've been disappeared and never heard from again, their families wait, not knowing if their loved ones are dead or alive. I mean, the kinds of crimes that have come out of Syria are really, are really mind-boggling. And I would have hoped there'd be a more muscular, clear, strategic uh, strategically directed uh, American foreign policy to end the conflict and protect civilian lives. We became involved in some ways, some minimal armament of, of the opposition, a series of diplomatic talks. All of it was enough to keep the war going, but not enough to end the war, not enough to really induce the regime to make the kinds of concessions to agree to a political transition. Um, our policy has has not contributed to ending this conflict and and helping to realize the dreams of the Syrian people for more freedom and for their basic lives to be protected. Um, I, I would hope it might still be possible for us to direct our policy in a way that accomplishes those goals. But I think this is a dark stain on our nation's foreign policy history and the 21st century for the entire planet that's allowed this or watched this or been a part of this um, unfolding in the horrific way it has. Wendy, I think that your book 
maybe more than any other that uh, I've read or, uh, you know, some of the images that I've seen uh, describes how horrific this is. I mean, there, there aren't adjectives to talk about how brutal this war is. I mean, you just talked about some of the things, but is it? am I accurate in observing that here in the United States that we really don't have a sense of how brutal this is and what's going on? I think so. And in some ways, I think it's impossible to really wrap your head around it. I mean, I've been doing interviews with with Syrians for five years. I've talked to hundreds of individuals. I now dedicate my scholarly life to studying this. And it is there are things that are impossible to put into words. There are things I think are impossible to imagine unless you have. So what I hope the book tries to do is sometimes provide the most human, basic micro details to just give people some sort of inkling to try to imagine. So for for example, there you know the story of a mother who takes her daughter to a doctor's appointment and they get cut uh, cut in the crossfire and you know throw themselves to the ground as as firing goes on above them because they're just trying to get back home from the doctor and the person next to them is killed. There's uh, another man talking in another instance with a child that um his there was so much curfew and bombing for the first two years of his baby's life um, that he, the, the, the toddler was only at home with his parents and his grandparents, never saw another child, never had contact with another child. And when he's two years old, he sees another child for the first time, is able to go outside the house, and he thinks that other child is a doll. And he goes and touches his eyes because he can't believe he's another human being. <laughs> he's never seen a human being that size. Um, and, and again and again, the stories, uh, there are stories of prisoners who've been tortured in, in prison. So you see in some ways the most, it, sometimes there are details that are not filled with blood or gore. Um, it's what it feels like. A, a daughter talks about, you know, she puts a blanket over herself when it's cold and she wonders her father, who's been arrested and disappeared, you know, does he have a blanket now wherever he is, or is he cold? Um, uh, it's these, these sort of these these details um, in in a in a way that's often quite literary, that's moving, that's emotional. Give give you just an inkling of what it feels like to be Syrian, what it feels like to. Um, to live the profound uncertainty, to lose your family members and loved ones, to not know whether you're going to make it through the night surviving a bombing raid or not. Um, It's this emotional impact um, and an insight into what the feelings and the thoughts, which I think it tries to be a supplement to what photography can offer, to what reporting can offer. It's that that those um, small insights into the emotional experience, which I hope brings this horror alive in a new way, in a different way that's, you know, yeah, again, not blood and guts, but hopefully insightful on an emotional level for readers um, to care more and to be moved by the Syrian tragedy. Let's take a phone call from David in Lemoyne. David, you're on the air. Uh, hi, yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I, uh, I I wondered, I, I haven't heard anything yet about uh, the resistance to the, to the Assad regime, uh, to to what extent is is Daesh or or ISIS or whatever you call them, where do they fit into the scenario, and 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 to what extent is this a conflict between secular and religious governance? Thank you very much for your call. Yes, we really haven't talked about ISIS. What about that? Yeah, no, and I think the caller—it's a, a terrific and important thing to put on the on the table. So um, we—it's interesting. In our, the earlier part of the conversation, talked a lot about the, the authoritarian regime and this civilian popular at first unarmed protest of people calling for reform and then for regime change, because that's really how this conflict began. That is its beginning. So even though it's evolved into much more, uh, much different ideological sort of battles, I think it's really important to remember that these are the origins. But then things did did evolve in in ways that became quite complex and really quite dark. So the regime responded to peaceful protests with violence. Eventually, the opposition took up arms, formed what became known as the Free Syrian Army, which was formed by both uh, civilians who took up arms and those um, Syrians who defected from the army, which is a conscript army. So many people doing their mandatory military service took their arms and left and became this new armed rebel force that saw itself as as, as secular and as nationalist as the regime, um, not with any particular ideological uh, or Islamist agenda, but wanting to use arms against the regime's arms to bring it down. Um, and, And as 
because that sort of as it evolved then from a popular uprising to an armed rebellion, things became quite chaotic um, in in the country. Al Qaeda, which at that point was based in Iraq, saw Syria as a the new um, battlefield, as the new uh, venture to to become involved. So Al Qaeda forces came from Iraq as well as some uh, uh, Al Qaeda uh, affiliated or um, inspired activists who were in Syrian prisons, who were allowed out of Syrian prisons, came together and formed Jabhat al-Nusra, which became basically al-Qaeda's affiliate in Syria. Um, they sort of announced their formation early 2012, so you know, six or seven months into the, 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 the conflict. Um, and, uh, and then ISIS eventually sort of uh, emerged from um, the al-Qaeda forces in Syria after a sort of a uh, you know, disagreement almost between two al-Qaeda leaders, ISIS in 2013 emerges and announces its formation. Um, all of this in the context of as there became an increasingly armed battle between the opposition and the regime, the regime was forced to withdraw from whole chunks of the country and basically cede those areas of the country to rebel control. And then that became an area, um, areas then, no longer under regime um, rule, which then uh, were opened other new spaces for, for various rebel groups to come and compete with each other for who controlled that territory. So in the context of whole parts of the country, some point something 40% of the country under rebel control, these various Islamist groups, the Al-Qaeda branch, which eventually changes its name, ISIS, which people also call Daesh by its sort of uh, Arabic acronym, and other groups um, fragmenting hundreds of different local brigades, groups with all sorts of different ideological tendencies, groups with different patrons. They're all depending on money from the outside. I mean, ISIS eventually is able to capture oil fields and use taxation, so it sort of generates its own internal funding. But other groups are often getting funding from the outside, which means there's another level of fragmentation that their external patrons might have different goals, different agendas, different competing interests, and they use money to control groups on the ground, beholden to them for the funds to be able to feed their fighters for arms and so forth. So you have groups competing on the ground for turf, for their different goals, their external patrons competing with each other for who controls the game of Syria, and becomes this very messy, complex, fragmented uh, opposition movement, which are often all see themselves as fighting the Assad regime, but are also fighting each other, sometimes working together, sometimes using arms against each other. It all is a recipe for a space of radicalization, of escalation of violence, and also a recipe in which that opposition finds it very, very difficult to ever achieve that goal of dislodging the regime. Mm -hmm. The regime, meanwhile, has its external patrons, Russia, Iran, Hezbollah fighters on the ground, um, that are helping the regime militarily, uh, economically, diplomatically, especially with Russia vetoing you, uh, you know, resolutions of the UN Security Council, and doing what it needs to to prop up that regime. Without that external support, it's difficult to imagine the regime would have survived. Um, but on the opposition side, things become uh, increasingly, increasingly messy. Besides this, the sheer radicalization of when people are killed and killed, when they see that you know the, the, the other countries of the international community that call for human rights and democracy are not doing much, and they're facing death, um, it is a it is a, a place that's been ripe for people to embrace all sorts of more radical ideological alternatives that maybe offer you know salvation in the afterlife or something to believe in. There's a very powerful um, passage in one of the books in which someone says, you know, you you are in dire need of a narrative to justify this futility of so much death, and and all the messages coming to you that you as an individual don't matter. So that is a space that makes itself ripe for for radical agendas like al-Qaeda's and, and those of ISIS. At the same time, al-Qaeda and ISIS are attracting huge numbers of foreign fighters. So people start flocking into Syria to fight whatever they imagine Syrian, the Syrian battle to be. And things evolve such that it's very, very different from this domestic civilian um, uh, rising up for for change that it began and, mm. and and many many Syrians in the book say things like you know the conflict is not even in our hands anymore many different parties state and non-state have interest in Syria they're all woven together and it doesn't depend on us our our, our struggle has been hijacked 
in Syria has become an international proxy war battlefield. Mm. And that's that's where we are today. Wendy Perlman is author of We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria, an important book. And Wendy Perlman will be speaking at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg tonight at 7. Ms. Perlman, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. World leaders are meeting in Bonn, Germany, to work out, or work on, I should say, the 2015 Paris Climate Accord and how it will be carried out. That's the agreement the United States signed on to during the Obama administration, but was rejected by the Trump administration. The U.S. did make a presentation in Bonn this week, arguing for more support of fossil fuels. And there are representatives from American cities and states that are working with other nations on plans to reduce greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change. Our guest today is speaking to us from Bonn in Germany. Dr. Donald Brown is a scholar in residence and professor of sustainability, ethics, and law at Widener University Commonwealth Law School here in Harrisburg. Dr. Brown, welcome to the program. Uh, Thanks a lot, Scott. Don, before we get into how uh, the rest of the world has looked at the United States and pulling out of the Paris Accord, tell us a little bit, give us a little bit of background about what Bonn is about, what this conference is about, what's going on. Okay, so the Paris uh, Accord was signed in 2015. It was very ambitious. Uh, Every, all 195 countries agreed to set a greenhouse gas target. Uh, But there's a lot of details that have to be worked out about how that will be monitored, what kinds of information they need to submit, uh, how do we ensure that that the world knows what each country is actually doing. So they're just simply trying to work out the details here. Uh, Many countries are also saying uh, the most recent climate science is really scary. Um, It it looks like sea level rise is rising faster. The the atmospheric concentration is going up. Uh, much faster than we thought. It's, it's going up at uh, three parts per million. And so some of the poor countries are, are asking the countries that already made a commitment to dramatically increase their commitment. So some of that is going on. But largely it's about how to make the details of what was agreed to two years ago actually work with a very specific rule book. By the way, if you would like to uh, speak with Don Brown, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Uh, Don, I don't want to say this is a correction, but I just it's, it's kind of uh, an update, if you will. You said all 195 nations agreed to this. Actually, there was one that didn't agree, and that was Syria. We were just talking about right. uh, Syria, but since then... Syria has moved on to the other side and agreed with the other 194 countries. Yes, that's correct. It, uh, that That is, in fact, correct. Uh, Nicaragua also didn't agree, but now has joined. Uh, so there's now 195 countries that are agreeing to uh, try to achieve the Paris Agreement's goals of limiting warming to 1.5 to 2.0 degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the United States pulling out of uh, the the Paris Climate Accords. And by the way, that cannot officially occur until 2020, from what I understand. But the Trump administration has already said that's going to happen and have made moves Mm -hmm. to do that. So what has been the attitude, from what I understand from what you've told me uh, in our communication, that this is like the big topic of conversation, the United States pulling out of Paris? Yeah, I've been coming to these uh, negotiations. Uh, this is my 15th year I've been to them, and I know a lot of people, and they all come up to me, and the conversation immediately begins with how outrageous, from their point of view, the Trump administration is. Uh, not only did he pull out, but he based it upon American economic interests. Uh, he was going to put American economic interests first. What's so outrageous from so many countries' point of view, it's our emissions that are hurt desperately hurting some poor countries in particular. Um, So for us to pull out and base it upon economic self-interest is seen by most of the world as an outrageous breach of of national responsibility. And and, uh, that's the way it's being talked about here. I've been into uh, a number of meetings in which uh, countries were um, 
on the one hand, expressing outrage, but on the other hand, uh, thankful that uh, Jerry Brown and some of the states are here uh, claiming that they will still try to meet the, the, the Obama commitment. So it's not all the, the, the outrage, which is really, really strong here. And, and Americans don't fully understand why the outrage is appropriate. Um, it's not directed against all Americans, but it's directed against the Trump administration. And it's particularly coming from those countries. There are, there are countries here that are pleading with the rich countries to stop what they're doing. They're already suffering. Uh, Chad and Niger and... Um, Mali, um, I've been t- talking to the people, and they're, they're talking about uh, drought that's already destroying farming. Uh, the, the, there are uh, countries, uh, uh, Fiji, I was discussed, talking with Fiji. Fiji's, the storms are getting bigger. It's killing people and destroying houses. So for the United States, which is by far the largest polluter in the world, in, not in terms of tons, but in terms of per capita and historical emissions, to say it's not going to cooperate because it's, because it's not in America's economic interest to do so, is rightly seen as an outrageously selfish, um, morally reprehensible position. Given The other thing that's happening here is that... Um, the, 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 the scientists are saying that the warming is uh, – there's a lot of reasons to be afraid that we're going to uh, – it's too late to limit the warming to 2 degrees centigrade, which has profound consequences for the climate system. You know, there are a lot of questions that arise from the Trump administration pulling out of, of, of Paris. You know, something that I have heard from a number of people that uh, they're, what they're concerned about is that the United States pulling out gives license to other nations to say, well, if the United States is not going to meet its goals or even attempt to meet its goals that the, the Obama administration had agreed to, then why should we? Why should we, you know, spend money, do the things that uh, we have to do to meet these goals when the second largest polluter on the earth is not? What about that? Well, that, that in fact, has been excuse of countries in other years. If the United States won't do it, we won't do it. But actually here, um, I think the sentiment is all countries are, are, are saying that they will, in fact, adopt policies to meet the Paris there's been a change in the world. Um, most countries believe that climate change is real. As someone said yesterday, 10 years ago, we thought the world was burning up, but we didn't know exactly um, what its causes were. Then they said the world is burning up, and we know the causes, and we really have to do something about it. So every place I have been, there has been strong, very strong international support for every country doing its fair share. Um, so countries that used to not do anything, like the OPEC countries, they're actually saying that they will, um, they will make significant contributions. So my reading is that, that there has been a change. The change has been triggered in part by a growing sense of the, the catastrophic potential for harm that, uh, that the, the global warming we're seeing uh, could create. Don, what about uh, China and India? Those were the two countries that uh, many people would point to when they would be, I don't know if you go with, you know, those who are obviously skeptical of climate change, but those who thought that the United States was doing too much uh, in comparison to those two countries, for example. What about China and India? And as we know, here in the past week or so, uh, there has been in, in India just some catastrophic pollution where people can't even see two feet in front of their 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 faces so what about those two countries well well, china and india are here saying they really get climate change they will really do their fair share Uh, china has the largest pavilion here china sees this they're going around the world saying uh the united states will not help you but we will uh china sees this from a geopolitical standpoint as a plus for them so China is being now viewed by a lot of the poorer countries as, uh, as a leader 
China's going around the world. They're selling huge amounts of solar energy and wind energy. They are talking here as if they want to be the leader on climate change. Now, their target is not that strong. The target they've agreed to is uh, that um, uh, 20% of their economy will be renewable energy uh, by 2030, at, at which time the, the emissions will stop going down. But they have canceled 70-some uh, coal-fired power plants. China really, really gets the significance of this problem, in my view. There's a lot more going on in China than most Americans are aware of. Four provinces have cap-and-trade programs. They are developing a cap-and-trade program for the entire country of China. Um, and, again, they are starting to uh, be a leader on renewable energy, I think, for selfish reasons, not, not necessarily because of compassion for the rest of the world. But they're trying to uh, get a reputation here as being uh, technical support that the poorest countries need. What about India? India is also uh, claiming it's going to trans... It, it, it just passed the law that uh, a certain percentage of their vehicles have to be electric in 20 years. That They're starting to put in massive amounts of solar energy. They have a target. Uh, some people think the target is not tough enough. I don't remember exactly what it is. Uh, but they clearly, clearly get uh, the... the their monsoons are starting to become weird. The storms are getting huge flooding in India. So at least in terms of India expressing in very strong terms that this is an enormous challenge for the human race, they are clearly doing that. They have, they, India and China have the two largest government pavilions here. Uh, and you go into the pavilion and you see... Uh, uh, what they are doing uh, for uh, renewable energy, for public transportation. So they're, they're claiming that they're, that they're fully engaged. You mentioned uh, about Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown of California being there. I know Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, is there and other American cities and states being represented. Uh, but earlier this week, the Trump administration laid out a presentation where they called for more fossil fuels or ways. Actually, I think specifically we we're talking about was cleaner fossil fuels. But uh, how that wasn't met very well, was it? It was met with um, outrage here. Uh, people were singing and dancing and interrupting. Um, in fact, the momentum here, one of the things they're trying to negotiate is, is the phase-out of all subsidies of coal in particular. So at the very moment where, where Trump is pushing coal, the rest of the world seems to acknowledge that we must get out of coal. Uh, one thing that Americans, very few Americans understand is to achieve the Paris uh, goals of 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade, the whole world must be zero carbon uh, for the 1.5 degrees centigrade uh, by 2045. That's zero. That means you not only have to get out of coal, you have to get out of natural gas also. So th uh, these countries are talking in these terms. There are now hundreds of cities that have set 100% renewable energy. Um, by the way, I'd like to say something about Pennsylvania in that regard, if I might. Sure. We, we only have about two uh, minutes left, Don. Okay. Uh, Pennsylvania has only five or six cities that have set a, a greenhouse gas target. Cities are doing, can do, and are doing an enormous amount. In fact, what cities are starting to do is a sign of hope here. Um, there are, uh, there's a consortium of universities called the Pennsylvania Environmental Resource Consortium that is going to create a program in Pennsylvania where 12 universities will help people work with cities to re reduce um, greenhouse gases. If anyone is interested in helping us with that, uh, there's a website that explains it all. It's called um, uh, goingtozerocarbonpa.org going to zero carbon, but we 
we need to get Pennsylvania is doing pretty poorly compared to other states, both at the state level and at the city level, although Harrisburg and Pittsburgh and a couple of other cities have started to step up. So, Don, we do have about a minute and a half left. One thing I did want to ask you about, these targets that uh, the nations around the world set for reducing their carbon emissions, um, for the most part, those are hard targets. But one of the criticisms has been that how to get there has been vague. From what you described earlier, that's what this whole conference is about. But how do you make vague strategies into hardcore strategies? Well, one of the, one of the, the, the things they promised to do is to be very, very specific when they, trans, when they make the next um, uh, com- submission to the, to the international community about how they're getting there. And all countries agree to be specific, transparent, and concrete. Um, the way the Paris Agreement works. Oh. Don, are you there? Uh, I think we lost Don, uh, Don Brown. That's uh, Dr. Donald Brown. Uh, he's a scholar in residence and professor sustainability and ethics and law at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. Uh, we had a nice uh, connection there. We're speaking to us live from Bonn in Germany at the, the, the climate talks in Bonn, where uh, the nations of the world, excluding the United States, are talking about how to meet the targets to reduce uh, gas uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, and meet their targets that are just a few years down the road in a way to uh, fight climate change. That's, uh, uh, again, I'm re- very happy and uh, uh, want to thank Don Brown for uh, being with us uh, from Bonn that uh, we were able to get him on the air. It took a little while to get him on the air, by the way. Uh, he was speaking at the conference this morning, but uh, we were able to get him on the air. I want to thank Don Brown and also uh, Wendy Perlman, who will be appearing in Harrisburg later tonight. Uh, coming up on tomorrow's Smart Talk, there's a Health Smart program on WITF-TV tomorrow night about dealing with aging in Pennsylvania, how Pennsylvania will deal with it. We'll discuss that on Smart Talk uh, tomorrow morning. Also, we have another uh, author, renowned author Masha Gessen, author of The Future of uh, the Future is History, about uh, Russians' transformation over the past 30 years. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com.